Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to Architecture Time, radio for the design-obsessed, hopeless romantics of the built environment. I'm your host, Mike Lavalley from EvolvingArchitect.com. We share with you brief stories, news, profiles, and projects from around the net, showcasing not only what the profession of architecture has to offer, but also helping you evolve your own career one episode at a time. Enjoy. Hey, guys. Welcome to the first, and I'm really excited to say this, the first episode of Architecture Time. This has been a long time coming, and I wanted to start with a show as part of this larger Evolving Architect podcast that will be sort of the thing that you can guys you guys can always come back to, and it's the show that essentially will happen every weekday, and we'll talk about something different each day, and you can listen to it sort of, you know, casually, either on your way to work or on your way back or during lunch or whenever. But there are brief episodes that really get to something that's, I don't know, fun or informative or um, captivating in the world of architecture and will help you understand not only more about the profession, but things that are kind of going on that can help you with your career or um, just even have conversations with other people about architecture in general. So, what we're going to do is today we're going to talk about, let's say, the call it the project of the week. And I want to start with a project that a lot of you probably are aware of. A lot of you have seen photos of this project. It's a, it's a fairly high profile one. Uh, but I want to start here because it's a project that is, let's say, it, it defies the... <laughs> the the normal aesthetic if there if you can even say that about projects that are based in in urban areas specifically this is a project that we will uh, dive into a little bit uh, in a moment but I, I just wanted to say something about it before we even get there that this project to me represents a lot of what the design philosophy should be right now in contemporary architecture um, Sometimes you, you'll see a lot of different um, designs being motivated mostly by um, budget and not really pushing the profession necessarily in any one direction or another, just kind of staying stagnant. And one of the things that I think you'll find about me as we as we talk more about these projects and we talk more about the uh, the designs of these projects is it's not always just about the aesthetic. It, it's a more about the philosophy behind the project and behind uh, the architects who are designing them. And not only the architects, but everybody who's involved as a stakeholder to realize these projects, to make them, you know, these amazing buildings that help to push the profession forward. So I've hyped this building up enough, I think. And let's, let's just get into it. So if you want to follow along, I'm going to have a link for this in the show notes, but Basically, what I'm going to do is I'm going to, uh, for this one and maybe for the next uh, several that we do, I want to do one of these projects of the week, um, you know, once once a week for, for a little while to see how you guys like it. But this first project is called Via 57 West, and it's by BIG, or Birke Ingalls Group. And I'll have a link to uh, the article I'm reading from in in the show notes. But basically, if you go to uh, Arc Daily, uh, that's where I'm getting this from. Uh, I just want to sort of 
talk about this a little bit and um, I'm going to actually read the description provided by the architects on the article because I think it's a really great way to understand, especially since this is an audio podcast and we're not really looking at anything, but I'm, I'm sharing with you the article so that you can go and look at the, at the, at the images and, and see a little bit more about what, what, what we're talking about. Um, the one thing you'll know is, uh, about this building, if you've ever seen it before is it's, it, it doesn't look like a traditional skyscraper in New York city. It's, it's on the, the West side and it's right along the water. It's, it looks sort of like a, um, uh, like a, like a wedge almost. Um, it doesn't look like a standard sort of rectangular box. You know, it has like a, a very strong taper to it with a courtyard in the middle. And a lot of the sort of shaped, um, sort of portions to this building are really to allow different views into the courtyard and or a lot of light and air into the courtyard in a in a way that also gives people a lot of views back into uh, the river so it's it's a way for the the architect to in this case Bjorka Ingalls group to really understand and really sort of elicit this this very um let's say guttural reaction because it's not it looks like almost nothing else on that side of the uh <laughs> that side of the city you know it's really sort of placing the flag down and saying look we're here and we are um <laughs> we're we're taking advantage of a lot of the the site features so that everybody in the in the building can can really sort of have a, a nice view and have uh, a way to sort of have an identity within the city. You know, a lot of these projects around it are, I don't want to say standard, but they're, they're a little bit more basic in terms of the, the kinds of forms that you'll see. And let's just get right into it. Let's, let's, let's read this uh, description provided by the architects, Bjarke Ingalls group from this article. Via 57 West, designed by Big, Bjarke Ingalls Group for the Durst Organization, introduces a new typology to New York City, the quartz scraper. The 830,000 square foot high-rise combines the density of the American skyscraper with a communal space of the European courtyard, offering 709 residential units with a lush 22,000 square foot garden at the heart of the building. Via occupies nearly a full city block at corner of... 50 of West 57th Street and West Side Highway with uninterrupted views towards the Hudson River Park and the waterfront. The Durst organization commissioned Big to design a building from for the site in the spring of 2010 and construction commenced in 2011. The 32-story building has welcomed residents since residents since May 2016 with the construction completing this fall. Earlier this year, the Council on Tall Buildings and Urban Habitat named VIA the best tall building in the Americas as part of its 2016 Tall Buildings Award. Quote, we are very excited about the building, and the activity has exceeded our expectations in terms of velocity and the rents. We always were thrilled with the building, but even more so now. Quote, Douglas Durst, the Durst Organization. 
The Via Quartzcraper is a hybrid between the European perimeter block and the traditional American high-rise. The building peaks at 450 feet at its northeast corner, thereby maximizing the number of apartments and graciously preserving the adjacent Helena Tower's views of the river. Via's volume changes depending on the viewer's vantage point. From the west, it's a hyperbolic paraboloid, or a warped pyramid. From the east, the quartzcraper appears to be a slender spire. The shared green space at the heart of the block is derived from the classic Copenhagen urban oasis. The courtyard has the exact same proportion as Olmsted's Park, just 13,000 times smaller, a bonsai central park. In a similar accumulation of natural landscapes, the courtyard transforms from a shaded forest in the east to a sunny meadow in the west. Designed by landscape architecture firm Star White House, it features 80 new planted trees and lawns and 47 species of native plant material. Quote, in recent decades, some of the most interesting urban developments have come in the form of nature and public space, reinserting themselves back into the post-industrial industrial pockets, excuse me, freeing up around the city. The pedestrianization of Broadway and Times Square, the bicycle lanes, the High Line, and the industrial piers tur turning into parks, located at the northern tip of the Hudson River Park, VIA continues the process of greenification, allowing open space to invade the urban fabric of the Manhattan city grid in an, unlikely, in an unlikely fusion of what seems to be two mutually exclusive typologies, the courtyard and the skyscraper. The court scraper is the most recent addition to the Manhattan skyline. End quote. Bjarke Ingels, founding partner, big. By keeping three corners of the block low and lifting the northeast position portion, excuse me, of the building, the courtyard opens views towards the Hudson River and brings the low western sun deep into the block. While the courtyard is a private space and a sanctuary for residences, it can still be seen the, from the outside, creating a visual connection to the greenery of the Hudson Park. The building's predominantly residential units of different sizes with cultural and commercial program at the street level and the second floor. The lower levels of VIA have strong relationship to the courtyard. The lobby is connected directly to the courtyard via a grand stair which invites residences into the courtyard space. The generous amenities at VIA include lounges and event spaces, a golf simulator, movie screening room, a pool, a basketball court, a gym, and exercise studios, and game rooms for poker, ping pong, billiards, and shuffleboard, and are all constructed around the courtyard to create a strong physical and visual connection between the interior and exterior communal spaces. At the upper levels, the apartments are organized on a fishbone layout, orienting the homes towards the view of the water. Large terraces are carved into the warped facade to maximize the views and lights into the apartments while ensuring privacy between the residences. The material concept for the interior design of the project is scanned American, another layer of the European-American hybridity. The, they blend classic modern Scandinavian material sensibility blended with local New York materials. The primary materials of the apartments are oak wood floors and cabinets and white porcelain tiles in the bathrooms. As an ultimate union of Scan-American design, the event spaces feature the VIA 57 chair designed in collaboration with Big and Kibisi for Danish heritage brand Republic of Fritz Hansen. The design translates the distinct tetrahedral shape of the building into a multifunctional piece of furniture, bringing a piece of the Manhattan skyline into shared spaces for VIA residences. The building also features a complementing eight-story sculpture by Stephen Glassman entitled Flows Two Ways, 
Anchored on the facade of the adjacent Helena Tower, once completed, the ground floor commercial space will hold, host such a public amenities as a restaurant from the Levinos Restaurant Group, a landmark theater's movie cinema, and the first U.S. retail store for the American Kennel Club. So that's that's from the architect, and you know it's a a fairly good description of this uh, project, a little bit better than mine was in the beginning. Um, apologize for any of the uh, the misreadings here, um, but it's uh, it's a it's one of my favorite projects from uh, Bjorka Ingels group. Um, a lot of the projects have very similar sensibilities in terms of, I wouldn't say that any of his uh, Bjorka Ingels um, projects necessarily look the same, but the ideology, uh, especially if you've ever read um, Yes is More, if you've ever read something like that and understood a little bit more of their philosophy, it's far less about the formal proposition in terms of the look necessarily, but it's all about creating a, a sense of, um, a sense of what will work best for not only the, the people who use the building, but will also engage the, the urban environment in such a way that it's not just about the one building anymore it's about everything else around it and it's about everything that the project itself kind of represents in terms of how to move forward so the one diagram that they have here that i think is probably the most captivating is they have a sort of a tower with a uh, a plinth at the bottom and these are both sort of boxy rectangular sort of uh forms and then they have like a plus sign and then a drawing of a courtyard building a typical courtyard building and then they have it an equal sign to what the overall form is for uh via 57 and the thing that captivates me the most about this this idea is the fact that there's sort of this blending of the two components but in a way that I don't think most people necessarily would think of right away. I think if you were to give this to, uh, you know, a hundred different designers, you might end up with something where the courtyard is just sort of plugged into the plinth or something like that. But the um, Bjorke Ingels group solution really takes the form and sort of twists it and transforms it into a way that is both visually captivating but also allows more in, in some ways allows for maybe not necessarily more units but for more diversity of the the views and the units that are in this project and there's just something that's really cool to see from and if you look at some of these photos to understand sort of or imagine what it would be like to be in any one of these units it it gives not really necessarily like a special preference to any of them but kind of gives a, a unique feeling to any of the units to no matter where you are in the building and i think there's something just really interesting about the way that this has been executed it's very clean very um, simple uh, streamlined uh, components and all of the materials from the the way that these photos sort of lay out are very straightforward 
you know, very, again, very clean forms, lines, and surfaces. And there's something that's just really, really cool about this project. So I highly recommend that you guys check it out. And yeah, it's, it's something that I think we can all sort of aspire to. You know, this isn't, you know, like the best or necessarily the most profound project ever in the history of the world. But it is something that I think we should look at as a precedent, especially for an urban project, um, an urban project that is a very high profile one. Um, you know, a lot of times you'll see new towers go up and they'll be sort of run of the mill, but there's something that's a little bit more captivating about this, a little bit more fascinating to me. And I hope that you share the same interest. Again, I'll keep uh, the article in the show notes, but that's, that's really what it comes down to. And it's, it's all about pushing the envelope of what we can do as architects and what we can do as designers and creatives. All right, so let's get into the next segment or the newest segment, the newsroom, architectural newsroom, that is. And what this really is going to be all about is taking recent-ish sort of articles from the news and bringing them to you guys so that you can, if you're not aware that these things are happening, um, be a little bit more in the know. So what I'm doing is I'm basically pulling articles from Arc Daily, Arc Newspaper, Arc, the Architects Newspaper, uh, all over the internet, other places, just to bring the sort of trending topics to here so that we can discuss them and talk about them a little more. So the first one up is about Tesla. And if you're not aware of this, um, a little while back, Tesla unveiled this sort of new solar roof tile that they're starting to put into manufacturing. But this article from Arc Paper, uh, basically uh, the headline is, Tesla solar roof tiles suffer serious delays at Buffalo factory. Uh-oh. And so, quote, production on Tesla's highly anticipated solar roof tiles is currently stalled out due to aesthetic quality concerns and assembly line problems at its Buffalo, New York factory. In an article published last week, Reuters interviewed eight former and current employees at Tesla Inc. and their joint venture partner, Panasonic, who revealed that the future of solar tile production is murky at this time. According to Reuters' unnamed sources, since opening last year, manufacturing at Tesla's Gigafactory 2 in Buffalo has suffered repeated interruptions with equipment, issues, and delays in achieving the tile style CEO Elon Musk is seeking. The state-owned photovoltaic cell factory, leased by Tesla's subsidiary, SolarCity, currently employs around 600 people. After the prototypes of Musk's sun-powered roof tiles were revealed two years ago, U.S. customers put down $1,000 deposits and production ramped up at the facility. Tesla told Reuters in a statement that though production has slowed, work can be expected to increase this year. Quote, we are steadily ramping up solar roof production in Buffalo and are also continuing to iterate on the product design and production process, quote, end quote, Tesla said. Per the subsidy agreement that allowed Tesla to build the $350 million factory and purchase production equipment, the company has to live up to its investment and employment promises in Buffalo and beyond. New York lawmakers are skeptical that the company can achieve the mandates that the state and the company have set. At least 1,460 people must be employed by Tesla within the two first, first two years of opening, and the company must spend $5 billion in New York over the next 10 years. So this is a, 
a little bit of a hiccup, I'd say. Um, the reason why this is important is because it's working on bringing a new technology to the industry, um, a new technology that really takes solar-powered tiles and makes them uh, viable in a, in a residential market. So I'm interested to see kind of what happens next, but that's... That's where that is. I don't know. <laughs> it's not really good news, but all right. So next story is an editorial on the Mirandi Bridge. And if you guys aren't familiar with what happened last week, uh, there was a, a really bad collapse of a bridge in Italy. And it's it's really sad. It's really frustrating too as a, as a, a designer and a person who um, I keep thinking back to the fact that my primary job as a, as a licensed architect is to protect the health, safety, and welfare of the public as things are being designed. Um, and it's, it's my responsibility in part to, to make sure that that is something that's aligned with my values and the values of everybody who's on the projects that I work on. So this is uh, an editorial that kind of breaks down the the major details and I wanted to talk about it and read it because it seems like something that um, it's one of the the best articles I've seen that's broken down kind of the the issues so the Mirandi Bridge collapse in Genoa Italy the Mirandi Bridge in Genoa Italy collapsed yesterday and in the next case it would be um, last week Apparently struck by lightning during a period of heavy rain, and about 30 people died and several others were injured. A viaduct on the A10 motorway, it was built between 1964 and 1967 and became a symbol of Italian post-World II development. The bridge was designed by talented structural engineer Riccardo Morandi, then a prominent figure along with the other Italian designers including Pier Luigi Nervi and Sergio Messi. Morandi designed a similar project in Venezuela several years earlier. The entire viaduct was about one kilometer in length with a maximum span of about 200 meters. It consisted of a reinforced concrete structure with hybrid pre-stressed cable stayed spans. Aside from its elegant design, it succeeded functionally because of its three piers that allowed it to fly over the existing buildings below. The viaduct was apparently weakened because the concrete was mixed with incorrect, incorrect viscosity, which created wave-like movement in the vehicle deck. Over the years, new steel cables were introduced to reinforce the inefficient pre-stressed stays while the whole bridge was facing constantly increasing traffic, reportedly more than 25 million passengers a year, nearly four times the number initially planned. A proposed bypass highway project to decrease truck transit had been discussed since 2009, but local committees, apparently the Five Stel or Five Stars populist movement governing Italy, jointly with Nationalist Liga Party since last June, rejected the proposal with a sarcastic mention of, quote, the fairy tale of the collapsing bridge, end quote. More recently, in 2016, independent Senator Maurizio Rossi said the former Minister of Transportation in a written Q&A that pointed out the potential structural issues of the bridge and highlighted the maintenance of the viaduct as a critical matter to be dealt with by the Society Autostrad, formerly the State Highway Company. Professional engineers and designers have also suggested reinforced concrete microfractures in the structure created by shaking from overloaded traffic were the potential reason for the collapse. Will this finally be a turning point for concrete as a hybrid construction material for bridges? It has long been seen as a poor material used by modernist egos in its former 
formal plasticity, even though it fails in durability. The Morandi Bridge was a national symbol of elegance and a crucial piece of infrastructure, and its collapse demands an appropriate infrastructure policy that deals with the maintenance, management, and public procurement. This is true not just in Italy, but worldwide, since reinforced concrete is the most common material for bridges all over the planet. Now, this one point that I did just uh, hop over, but was kind of emphasized in this article, is, quote, this will avoid similar mass murder, end quote. And I understand where the author is coming from in terms of the 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 feeling of frustration and the feeling of um, just disappointment and pain of what's going on in this in this part of the world. And it's a very sad time for the people in in Genoa and of Italy. And my heart goes out to them because, again, I really feel like as as builders and architects and construction professionals it's our job to make sure that a lot of this stuff stays up to snuff but also that we let people know um, when you know if this was designed for a certain kind of loading and the loading has just been increasing more than anybody originally ever thought it would just because of you know how much the society is growing or whatever it's it's up to the people in in other places that have the power to change this to to really look at the situations you know there's only so much that we as the professionals can do but it is still our part to keep pushing and to keep if we know that there's an issue to keep telling people about it because we need to get this in the forefront of people's minds so that we can avoid tragedies like this in the future all right so our last article set is actually two articles, um, both relating to one topic that's kind of been in a, uh, it's actually been a pretty big uproar in the architecture community. So you've probably seen this kind of floating around, but asbestos. Um, The EPA uh, is reforming um, and sort of enabling the reintroduction of asbestos potentially into manufacturing. So this first article that I'm going to talk about is about that. And then the second one is sort of the AIA or the American Institute of Architects response to this new uh, sort of ruling. So asbestos is returning to U.S. manufacturing due to EPA regulation reform. The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency has enabled the reintroduction of asbestos into the American manufacturing, as reported by Fast Company. The dangerous substance, outlawed in 65 countries, may now be introduced into the U.S. via common household products and materials. The development is the result of a SNR, S-U-N-R, or Significant New Use Rule, which allows asbestos-containing products to be petitioned and approved by the federal government on an individual basis. The loophole has manifested due to a relaxation of the EPA and how it evaluates the risk of potentially harmful chemical products. Under the EPA's framework, risk evaluations will no longer consider the effect or presence of substance in the air, ground, or water, offering a loophole to those seeking to reinstate asbestos-derived products. While asbestos does not pose a direct threat to consumers, the danger of interacting with harmful asbestos fibers becomes pronounced for mine workers, building renovators, and those in close proximity to landfills. Once a common mineral in the construction industry due to its heat retention properties, the substance has been strongly linked to illnesses such as lung cancer, resulting in outright bans of asbestos-containing products over across 65 countries from the 1970s onwards. 
While the U.S. has never entirely outlawed the substance, its use has been heavily restricted by legislation in 1972 and 1989. Despite this, it is estimated by the Asbestos Disease Awareness Organization that 40,000 people in the U.S. die each year from asbestos-related conditions. Now, I mean, just to start with that, this is like an overview of kind of what's happening. Um, There's some nuances to this where I think... You know, the the EPA still has to essentially evaluate each of these new potential products that could come into the industry. But the fact that this is even kind of an issue at all is sort of weird because in my mind, why would you even put asbestos-containing products back in the market? I mean, especially when you you specifically know that it causes cancer, Um you know, as a as an architect who works a lot on renovation projects, like I would want to make sure that everybody working on the job site is protected and that, you know, when there is abatement that's necessary to get this stuff out of the buildings that we're renovating, you know, that that is taking place um, at whatever level it needs to so that when there's actual work that's being done around items that have already been abated, that the full abatement is out. You're not worried about the asbestos and the the sort of hazardous materials anymore, and you can just do your job. Um, And a lot of cases, the government's um, government regulations will require you to basically say that you're not going to use any um, asbestos material, containing materials in the renovation work. You know, I work a lot with uh, school projects in the state of New York, and it's one of the requirements we have on all the jobs. And one of the things that I'm kind of worried about with this sort of thing is that there's a little bit more leniency towards things, and then it became it makes all the rules more muddy, and it makes the um, sort of the safety issues here a lot a lot more gray in terms of what is allowed, what's not allowed, how do you control it, how do you not control it, are we protecting everybody properly, Um, and then you're just creating potential future issues for people who have to renovate these buildings, you know, 30, 40, 50, 100 years from now, and it's, it comes back to the question, should we even be doing this? So, now, there's sort of another follow-up to this, where the American Institute of Architects calls for banklet blanket ban on asbestos after online uproar. So like I said, you've probably seen this already. And there's been a lot of talk about what to do next. And a lot of the outlash kind of came back on the AIA saying like, you guys need to step up and say something. So in response to a rush of online outrage on Tuesday last week, American Institute of Architects has issued a formal statement dealing with its stance on the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency's significant new use rule or SNR on asbestos. Today, the organization submitted its comment in opposition to the recent decision via the EPA's online public commentary portal. The comment takes the form of a letter from Sarah Dodge, AIA's Senior Vice President of Advocacy on, and Relationships, to Acting EPA Administrator Andrew Wheeler. In it, the AIA urges the agency to establish a blanket ban on asbestos in, in the country and phase it out of use. Either Quote, either by existing authority or through a significant new use rule, the EPA should review and eliminate the use of asbestos in domestic or imported materials, end quote, the letter says. Dodge explains that it's the responsibility of architects to ensure the inclusion of healthy materials within building projects and in its 
and in instances where hazardous substances already exist inside renovations, it's up to the design providers to guide involved parties in the safe removal of those toxins. AAA 2018 President Carl Elefante released a separate statement reiterating Dodge's letter. Quote, the EPA has offered no compelling reason for considering new products using asbestos, especially when the consequences are well known and have tragically affected the lives of so many people. The EPA should be doing everything possible to curtail asbestos in the United States and beyond, not providing new pathways that expose the public to its dangers. End quote. Wheeler wrote in a tweet yesterday that the recent hype regarding the SNR had been has been inaccurate. He noted that the SNR would actually restrict new uses of asbestos, not encourage it. And this is a quote from the tweet. There have been from acting administrator, acting administrator Reeler, quote, there have been some inaccurate media reports regarding EPA's actions on asbestos. The fact is EPA is proposing a new rule that would allow the restriction of asbestos manufacturing and proposing new uses of asbestos, end quote. According to the FAQ linked in the tweet, potential use, uses for asbestos that would be banned from the market through the SNR included asbestos-reinforced plastics, extruded sealant tape, millboard, roofing felt, vinyl asbestos floor tile, roof and non-roof coatings, and other building products. Items such as corrugated paper, rollboard, and flooring felt have already been banned outright in the United States. The FAQ doesn't quite hold up to the recent reports on the Obama administration's involvement in restricting these toxic substances and the subsequent products. Under the 2016 Amendment to the 1976 Toxic Substances Control Act, TCSA, the EPA began the process of evaluating the first 10 toxins listed in order to decipher whether or not they should banned entirely or further restricted. This week's frenzy over asbestos comes directly from the EPA's May report indicating how the agency would move forward in evaluating those chemicals. As of yesterday, 154 comments were submitted to the EPA regarding the SNR. Today, that number has increased to 698. You can still submit a comment to the EPA through tomorrow, August 10th. At this point, there's this has been done for a little bit. Thereafter, the agency will review all comments, further evaluate the initial toxins up for the review in the TSS, TSCA. Final details of their deliberation and a new version of the rule will be released in December of next year. So kind of what this comes down to, though, is just it's possible that this has been blown out of proportion in terms of um, what is actually in the EPA's language of how they are addressing this. The problem that I see is really that there are, it's just, there are, it doesn't feel like there, there's any reason to really keep, uh, I really like, um, uh, president, uh, Elefante's, uh, AIA, um, statement, the EPA had quote the EPA has offered no compelling reason for considering new products using asbestos. I mean that says it all for me. And understanding that these things have really dire effects on the people who are exposed to them, and you know the fact that we're going into we're spending so many dollars to abate these buildings and to get rid of this this danger to the public and the people who use the building. Even if you just consider that as a cost, as a financial cost to people who own these buildings and who have to deal with this stuff later, it's that is a significant reason alone. Not to mention the even bigger reason, which is the health and safety and welfare of the people who are using these buildings. Whether you're maintaining it, whether you're renovating it, whether you're just a user of the building or an owner, 
this is important to make sure that we have a, a better handle under what the EPA is actually proposing. And if they're proposing to not do a blanket ban, um, at some point to really push for, honestly, to push for one, because I think that the only other way that we're going to keep moving forward is to keep pushing and to keep demanding that this sort of be taken out of the built environment. So that's that's a wrap on the, on the articles for today. Uh, check us out next week, and we'll uh, we'll come back to the newsroom and hopefully have a, a couple pieces of news that are a little bit more, um, let's say, upbeat, but keep you updated on what's going on around the profession. So in our next segment of Architecture Time, I want to talk specifically about architects and their backgrounds and what we can kind of learn from architects, not only of the past, but also current architects. Um, what I want to do is really keep this as sort of, uh, right now I'm calling it career corner, as a way to sort of talk specifically about the careers and works of of architects that are important to the profession and to sort of glean what we can from their histories, their projects, and all of that kind of good stuff so that we can take that and either apply it to our own careers or just uh, enjoy the the sort of kind of, let's call it, history lesson on uh, these architects. So I think the best place to start for something like this is not necessarily way, way back in history, but to keep it a little bit more modern, uh, no pun intended, but I want to start with somebody who is sort of the quintessential modernist, uh, someone who, when you hear about them, uh, they elicit very specific feelings. Um, like, I, I think that you're probably somebody who either admires or at least respects uh, the work of this person. And this architect is Le Corbusier, uh, also known as Charles Edouard Genere. And he was, there's debate possible, I guess, but probably the most important um, modern architect of the last century. And so I want to go over a little bit of what, you know, his background is and a lot of the maybe projects that are sort of, you know, that come to the forefront. So doing a uh, search of all the materials and trying to find the best sort of compilation of this, uh, I turned to uh, Britannica.com and I want to read the profile that they've made for Kubusier. Le Corbusier, by name of Charles Edouard Genere, born October 6, 1887, in uh, Switzerland, died August 27, 1965, in Cap Martin, France, internationally influential Swiss architect and city planner, whose designs combine the functionalism of the modern movement with a bold sculptural expressionism. He belonged to the first generation of the so-called International School of Architecture, and was their most able propagandist in his numerous writings. In his architecture, he joined the functionalist aspirations of his generation with a strong sense of expressionism. He was the first architect to make a studied use of rough cast concrete, a technique that satisfied his taste for 
aestheticism for, and for sculptural forms. In 2016, 17 of his architectural works were named World Heritage Sites by UNESCO, or the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization. Education in Early Years Le Corbusier was born in a small town in the mountains, Swiss Jura region. Since the 18th century, the world's center of precision watchmaking. All his life, he was marked by the harshness of these surroundings and the puritanism of a Protestant environment. At 13 years of age, Le Corbusier left primary school to learn the enameling and engraving of watch faces, his father's trade, at the Ecole des Décoratifs at La Chale de Fonds. There, Charles Le Apletenier, excuse my lack of French, whom Le Corbusier later called his only teacher, taught him art history, drawing, and the natural aesthetics of Art Nouveau. It was he who decided that Le Corbusier, having completed three years of study, should become an architect, and gave him his first practice on local projects. From 1907 to 1911, on his advice, Le Corbusier undertook a series of trips that played a decisive role in the education of his self-taught architect. During these years of travel through Central Europe and the Mediterranean, he made three major architectural discoveries. The Charter House of Ima at Galuzzo in Tuscany provided a contrast between vast collective spaces and, quote, individual living cells, unquote, that formed the basis for his conception of residential buildings. Through the 16th century, late Renaissance architecture of Andrea Palladio in the Veneto region of Italy and the ancient sites of Greece, he discovered classical proportion. Finally, popular architecture in the Mediterranean and the Balkan Peninsula gave him a repertory of geometric forms and also taught him the handling of light and the use of landscape as an architectural background. At the age of 30, he returned to live in Paris, where his formation was completed a year later when he met the painter and designer Amade Alzenfant, who introduced him to sophisticated contemporary art. Alzenfant initiated Le Corbusier into purism, his new pictorial aesthetic that rejected the complicated abstractions of cubism and returned to pure, simple geometric forms of everyday objects. In 1918, they wrote and published together the Purist Manifesto, Après le Cubism. In 1920, with the poet Paul Dermay, they founded a polemic avant-garde review, L'Esprit Nouveau. Open to the arts and humanities with brilliant collaborators, it presented ideas in architecture and city planning already expressed by Adolf Loos and Henry van de Velde. Fought against the styles of the past and against elaborate non-structural decoration and defended functionalism. The association with Alzenfant was the beginning of Le Corbusier's career as a painter and as a writer. Alzenfant and Le Corbusier, then still known as Jean Ray, together wrote a series of articles for L'Esprit Nouveau, and they were to be signed with pseudonyms. Alzenfant chose Saunier and the name of his grandmother, and suggested for Jean Ray the name Le Corbusier, the name of a paternal forebear. The articles written by Le Corbusier were collected and published as Verse une Architecture, later translated as Toward a New Architecture, 1923. The book is written in a telling style that was to be characteristic of Le Corbusier in his long career as a polemicist. A house is a machine for living in, quote, and a curved street is a donkey track, a straight street, a road for men, 
are among his famous declarations. His books, whose essential lines of thought were born of travels and lectures, hardly changed at all in 45 years, constituted a Bible for succeeding generations of architects. Among the most famous are Urbanisme, 1925, The City of Tomorrow, 1929, Quand les Cathedrales, <laughs> When the Cathedrals Were White, uh, and Le Modular One, uh, 1948. Le Spirit Nervo was the springboard for Le Corbusier's entrance into practice. In 1922, he became associated with his cousin, Pierre Jean Array, and together they opened a studio. The association of the two cousins lasted until 1940. It corresponds to the first of the two main periods separated by World War II that can be distinguished in Le Corbusier's work. The second period covers the years from 1944 to the architect's death in 1965. The first period. The years from 1922 to 1940 were as remarkably rich in architecture as in city planning projects. As was always to be the case with Le Corbusier, unbuilt projects, as soon as they were published and circulated, created as much of a stir as did the finished buildings in the Salon des Autumn of 1922. Le Corbusier exhibited two projects that expressed his idea of social environment and contained the germ of all the works of this period. The Citrohan House displays the five characteristics by which the architect five years later defined his conception of what was modern in architecture. Pillars supporting structure, thus freeing the ground beneath the building, a roof terrace transformable into a garden and an essential part of the house, an open floor plan, a facade free of ornamentation, and windows and strips that affirm the independence of the structural frame. The interior provides this the typical spatial contrast between open split-level living and space and the cell-like bedrooms. An accompanying diorama of city illustrated ahead of its time, the concept of green parks and gardens at the floor of, foot of a cluster of skyscrapers. The ideas for city planning set forth at the Salon d'Automne, an annual semi-official exhibition, were taken up again and developed in 1925 at the Exposition des Arts Décoratifs in Paris in a pavilion that was to be, quote, manifesto of Esprit Nouveau, end quote. In this little duplex flat, the interior walls, violently colored under the influence of the painter Fernand Laguerre, Le Corbusier exhibited his first collection of industrially pr produced furniture. During these years, in fact, Le Corbusier's social ideals were re realized on two occasions. One of these was in 1925-26, to 26, when, thanks to the financial support of an industrialist, he built Pesac, near Bordeaux, a worker city of 40 houses in the style of Citroën House. The scorn for the local tradition and the unconventional use of color provoked hostility on the part of the municipal authorities who refused to provide a public water supply. Pesac was thus deprived of inhabitants for six years, and Lake Herbusier did not forget this affront. In 1927, the architect participated in the international expedition of the Deutscher Workbund an association of various groups concerned with producing functional objects of high aesthetic value. For this exposition, Le Corbusier constructed two houses in the experimental residential quarter of Weissenhof at Stuttgart. Although Le Corbusier was from the beginning most interested in building for large numbers of people, during the pre-war period that he built primarily for privileged individuals who commissioned individual houses, they were functional in design and aesthetic in appearance. In incorporating rigorous geometric forms and bare facades, 
This first was for Ausenfant in 1922, followed by, among others, the house of the Swiss collector Raoul La Roche, 1923, which became later which later became the quarters of the Le Corbusier Foundation in Paris, 1968. The villa, 1927, of Michael Stein, a brother of the expatriate American writer and patron of Thauvism and Cubism, Gertrude Stein. The Villa Savoie, 1929-31, at Poissy, set in a lush rural landscape on slender concrete pillars. In 1927, Le Corbusier participated in the competition set by the League of Nations for the design of its new center in Geneva. His project with its wall of insulating and heating glass is one of the finest examples of the architect's gift for functional analysis. For the first time anywhere, he proposed an office building for a political organization that was not a neoclassical temple, but corresponded in its structure and design to a strict analysis of function. This plan was to become a prototype for all future United Nations buildings. It probably would have shared first prize, but was eliminated on the grounds of not having been drawn up in India ink, as the rules of the competition specified. After the disappointment of Pesach, this disqualification, which was almost certainly the result of a conspiracy on the part of the conservative members of the jury, further embittered Le Corbusier in his attitude toward official architectural circles. The scandal accompanying the elimination of this, his design, however, gave him needed publicity by identifying him with modern avant-garde architecture. An immediate consequence of the Geneva Affair was the creation of, in La Serrats, Switzerland, in 1928, of the International Congresses of Modern Architecture. Intended at first to defend avant-garde architectural values defeated in Geneva, by 1930 the organization had become oriented toward city planning theory. Le Corbusier, as secretary of the French section, played an influential role in the five pre-war congresses and especially in the fourth, which issued in 1933 a declaration that elaborated some of the basic principles of modern architecture. The publicity of the Geneva competition also made possible for Le Corbusier a lecture tour in South America that was a source of his reflections on the present state of architecture and urbanism and a trip to Moscow where he was able to make contact with avant-garde constructivist architects who won the competition for the Centroy Suez building, 1929-35. Lake Corbusier constructed two other important buildings during this period, the Salvation Army Hotel Hostel in Paris, with its attempt at, quote, breaking glass wall conceived as an unopenable glass surface equipped with an air conditioning surf system, a technological and financial failure and the Swiss dormitory at the Cité Universitaire in Paris, 1931-32. to In the latter structure, he set the dormitory area apart from the common services areas located in a separate building. The two segments were connected by a stairway tower. Surfaces were largely, largely unfinished, and for the first time, the massive pillars took on a sculptural value. At this point, Le Corbusier's rational functionalism began to be balanced by a desire for expression. The end of the 1930s saw such especially famous projects as the Master Plans for Algiers and Buenos Aires, the Building for the Ministry of Education and Health in Rio de Janeiro, and an infinitely expandable museum for Philippeville in French North Africa. There was also a trip to the United States where Le Corbusier was already famous. Le Corbusier's diverse activities corresponded to a chosen lifestyle. He was not a teacher like his colleague Walter Gropius, but the boss, who shut himself up alone in his office while his collaborators, who had come from all over the world, some of whom would later become famous, 
worked outside in the long hall that served as a studio. Laker Boussier came to the office only in the afternoons. His break with Ozenfant in 1925 had not interrupted his painting career, and he usually spent his mornings painting at home. He was, by the mid-1930s, marked by the influence of Fernand Laguerre, who remained one of his few good friends. The War Years World War II and the German occupation of France interrupted his activity as a builder and a traveler and his 20-year association with Pierre Jeanneret, who, unlike Le Corbusier, had joined the French resistance. Although he was prepared to work with the Vichy government, there was little building being done at the time in France, and only and his only activities were painting, writing, and reflection. Le Corbusier's thoughts during this time led to the elaboration of the first basis of the modular concept, a scale harmonic measures that set architectural elements in proportion to human stature. This theory was finally perfected in 1950, and Le Corbusier used it in designing all of his subsequent buildings, wishing them to incorporate, quote, a human scale. By the time the war ended, Le Corbusier had welded the attacks launched against him by representatives of traditional architecture into a myth. He had become, for the public, the Picasso of architecture, and for architecture students, the symbol of modernity. The Second Period Le Corbusier thought that he would finally be able to apply his theories of planning and reconstruction of France. He prepared in 1945, in 1945 two plans for the cities of saint Thierry and Le Palice Rochelle. At saint Thierry in Fosque Mountains, the Fosque Mountains, he proposed regrouping the 30,000 inhabitants of the destroyed town into five functional skyscrapers. These plans were rejected, but they subsequently circulated through the world and became doctrine. Le Corbusier was bitter, however, and his bitterness increased when he was named a member of the jury of architects for the construction of the United Nations building in New York City, instead of being asked to design it himself. At last, thanks to the unlimited support of the French government, Le Corbusier was given the opportunity to construct a large, private housing complex. He was commissioned to build in Marseille a residential complex that embodied his vision of a social environment. The Marseille Project, Unitated Habitation, is a vertical community of 18 floors. The 1,800 inhabitants are housed in 23 types of duplex, i.e. split-level apartments. Common services include two streets inside the building, with shops, a school, a hotel, and on the roof, a nursery, a kindergarten, a gymnasium, and an open-air theater. The apartments are conceived as individual, quote, villas stacked in the concrete frame like bottles in a rack. It was completed in 1952, and two more unités were built at other locations in France, Nantes and Briey, as well as others in West Berlin. Two religious buildings in France were commissioned as a result of the influence of the, the Dominican father, Reverend Cotier, creator of the revue L'Art Sacre. The more lyrical of the two, the chapel of Notre-Dame du Haut at Rochamp, Sacrifices Le Corbusier's famous principles of apparent functionalism. The wall has been built to a double thickness for a visual effect, and the roof, which appears to be suspended, actually rests on a forest of supports. More brutal and austere is the convent of Saint Marie de la Tourette and Evus sur Arbre Slay near Lyon. The square building imposes a fortress of concrete in a natural setting. In the three-tiered facade of glass at La Tourette, Le Corbusier first employed panes of glass set at, quote, musical intervals to obtain a lyrical effect. Le Corbusier's reputation in France was established with two large expositions 
of his work in Paris in 1953 and in 1962. Only from 1950 on did Le Corbusier become active at a large scale outside of France. In 1951, the government of Punjab named him architectural advisor for the construction of its new capital, Chandigarh. For the first time in his life, Le Corbusier was able to apply his principles of city planning on a metropolitan scale. Totally without reference to a local tradition, he designed the Palace of Justice, the Secretariat, and the Palace of Assembly. Unfinished concrete with windows sheltered by enormous concrete sunshades, the sculptural facades, swooping rooflines, and monumental ramps are principal elements of his architecture, which immediately influenced architects all over the world. He built the National Museum of Western Art in Tokyo, the Carpenter Visual Art Center at Harvard University, and designed an exposition pavilion at Zurich, which was constructed posthumously. Lake Corbusier was not greatly impressed by his late recognition. He seemed to prefer the image of a solitary and persecuted genius. Nevertheless, he continued to conceive new projects until the end of his life. An art center for Frankfurt, the Olivetti Computer Center in Milan, the Palais de Congress in Strasbourg, and the French Embassy in Brasilia. Le Corbusier died suddenly in 1965 while swimming. The man who had thought of himself so misunderstood in his own time was given a national funeral, and in 1968, the Le Corbusier Foundation was was created. So that's a whole lot to go on, but I think what it comes down to when I when I read that and I, I sort of think about the kinds of things that Le Corbusier did for not only the people that he helped with his projects, but also the people he influenced. I know that there are generations of architects and designers who are heavily, heavily influenced by his work. And in particular, I, I think of the uh, the Ville Savoie. It's one of the ones that was touched on in this reading, but it's it's influential even to the point where there are Lego sets and one of the Lego sets um, for architects is the Ville Savoie. And I, ha- I personally have it on my own, um, on my own shelf in my office. It's, it represents to me a, a mentality to kind of keep things straightforward and, and simple and not simple for simplicity's sake, but simple in terms of creating functionality and making making the shapes and forms and lines of the designs that you work with um, clean and and clear and concise and not trying to overshadow something with ornament just for ornament's sake. Now there's a lot more to break down with Le Corbusier and uh, maybe we'll talk about him more in the future but I want to try this out as a new segment and see what you guys thought about it. Um, see if it's something that you're interested in. If you are, I'll keep doing these. Um, I really enjoyed reading it and I hope that you got something out of it today and that it will sort of help you, you know, maybe you will be, excuse me, maybe you'll be more interested in learning more about Le Corbusier. And that's my hope is that this sort of session is all about creating a framework for you guys so that you can then go do more research if you're interested in somebody that we kind of highlight on the show. In our next segment, I want to bring you guys into the fold here with this show, and I want to basically open it up to questions. I want this to be sort of a question and answer segment um, that right now I'm calling Mailbag. 
which I guess would be listener mail. Um, and really what it is is you guys ask questions and I'll answer them as best I can. Um, since this is one of the first, well, this is the first version of this segment, I have a question here that I want to sort of pose to the audience. And I also wanted to um, sort of bring you guys my uh, take on it and we'll see how we go from there. I don't think it'll always just be one question, but if you guys do have questions, uh, please feel free to um, to put them up on the uh, the Facebook page, the facebook.com slash evolving architect, or you can um, tweet me at uh, at Archivalley, A-R-C-H-I-V-A-L-L-E-Y. And let's keep the discussion rolling. Um, and maybe maybe we'll uh, we'll get some of your questions up here as well. So the, the question I want to pose today is, how do you become an architect? And I always, I always find this interesting for two reasons. One, I don't always hear this from people who are just beginning their path. Sometimes I... I hear this from people who are already either in school or through school and still don't really know how to get their license or or what have you. So we come with this from two different places. One, if you have no idea how to become an architect, the first place to look is to figure out what it is, you know, that you want to really do like do you really want to become an architect or do you want to become an engineer or do you want to become um, a designer you know if you want to become an architect there are the sort of three E's that I keep coming back to one is education and then experience and then examination and sometimes those are mixed up a little bit depending on how you approach things but really the education comes down to having either an accredited degree at a uh, college or university, um, such as like a Bachelor of Architecture, which in my case, I have a Bachelor of Architecture for five years. Um, most you know college degrees are four years, but there's an, an extra year in there to make it a fully accredited degree so that you're getting all of the educational requirements fulfilled um, and that you meet certain criteria so that your baseline is is a certain level uh, before you get your experience and before you test. Or you can you can go alternative routes. Like let's say you get a uh, an undergraduate degree in something else other than architecture. There's nothing saying you can't go get your master's uh, in an accredited degree program in something else and maybe do a either like a um, a four two combo. You know four year degree two year combo or four years, three and a half, depending on what the uh, university is or what their programs are. This varies wildly, so I, I can't speak to all of them individually, but just know that it's several years of education. This is after a normal high school education in the U.S. So, again, if you're in the U.S., you get through college, you, you go through um all the years of you know being in studio and staying up late and making projects and getting critiques and things like that you go in the, into quote the real world and then the other e the second e experience starts and this is where depending again on the state requirements it varies wildly um, but 
in general, you're probably going to have about three years of experience that you need to fulfill um, in order to also, you know, qualify for your architecture license, your initial license in whatever U.S. state that you're thinking of. And that experience is under the supervision most of the time, I'd say the majority of the time, under supervision of a, someone who's already licensed as an architect. So the idea being that they can kind of take you under their wing, teach you what they know, and then prepare you for the third E, which is the exam. And I think the exam would probably be best suited under its own kind of question, its own, you know, maybe content format or or something like that. But just because it's it's a lot, it's a lot to take on right now. But the thing to know there is right now we are in the ARE 5.0, the architect registration exam, uh, version 5.0. There are six segments to this exam, and it's, you know, something like 30-plus hours worth of actual time in an exam setting, not to mention the roughly, like, 35 to 45 hours that are usually recommended per exam segment to study for the exam. So by the time you're done with this, you're, you know, you're well over 200 hours worth of exams and studying and all that jazz not to mention three years of experience and you know roughly anywhere from five to seven or eight or longer depending on how many degrees you get of education so it takes a long time to become an architect and it's definitely not something i would say to take lightly it's something that i knew fortunately i knew that I want to do from a very, uh, not a, a really early age, but I knew early enough, like in, um, you know, middle school, high school, that that's what I really wanted to do. And I just sort of kept, you know, gradually over time, picking away at it, building myself up, building up my experience, um, taking it seriously and really just kind of, you know, dedicating and and committing myself to getting stuff done and now you know i've been a licensed architect for a couple of years now and i've been in the industry working full-time for a decade and it's a really great sort of um a feeling of accomplishment to be where i am in my career and you know it doesn't it, it definitely doesn't happen overnight and you need to have a support system in place of people around you who understand not only what it is to do the kinds of things that you're doing but who will support you when you're, you, know, you you kind of get down on yourself or you're having a rough go of it um, but what it means to become an architect is you are a leader in the built environment and a leader in the construction industry um, helping to sort of pave the way and inspire future generations um, to sort of build a better world is kind of the way I think about it. So that's a really brief uh, mailbag for this week, but I just wanted to put that out there because I know that, you know, in the future, I'd really like to get you guys to um, essentially ask whatever questions you want about architecture, architecture career, um, anything related to being an architect. Um, I'd be happy to answer your questions. So again, if you wanted either... 
Um, leave a comment on the Facebook page at evolving Ar- facebook.com slash evolving architect or tweet me at uh, at Arca Valley, A-R-C-H-I-V-A-L-L-E-Y. Um, I, I'd be happy to uh, to look at your questions and uh, keep this conversation going. Well, that seems like a wrap on the first episode of Architecture Time. If you're still listening to this, which I hope you are, um, thanks for um, thanks for sticking with it. The first episode wasn't too much of a train wreck. I think it'll get better, but I just want to say thank you, and I'll see you next time. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Architecture Time. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing to the podcast, leaving a review, and sharing it with someone you know. It would mean the absolute world to me and would really, really help the podcast grow. For more Architecture Time and other fun, informative content related to architecture and the profession, please visit evolvingarchitect.com. Thanks for being awesome, and we'll see you next time.